bringing out some applications and, and, and interpretation, really, of how we are viewing all of Scripture in light of this central truth. It's the very central, this truth is very central to all of Scripture, the, the Lordship of Jesus Christ in God the Father and what that means in every facet of life. So let's pray and then we'll read. Father, bless us this afternoon, everyone here. We have full stomachs. Lord, it's easy to fall asleep, easy to be tired. Uh, keep us engaged. Bring forth this truth of national religion. Lord, help us to understand the, the broadness of the kingdom of God. Lord, we are guilty. Our generation is guilty of making the gospel too narrow and so narrow that it's insignificant in this world and to this world. Forgive us of that sin and Lord, even tonight, begin to correct it even more than you have. We pray all of this in Christ's name, amen. All right, I'm gonna begin reading it. Verse one, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, the rulers and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them and then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. And he said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth, worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, last week we looked at several verses or passages that that demonstrated that there is a real a valid and unique relationship between the Lord and magistrates. It's particular. That is, there's a relationship he has with them that does not exist with what we might call common folk. As the scripture teaches us, they sit in the seat as gods meaning of authority and of power and judgment. And the Lord takes particular interest in their actions. Now, this afternoon, I want to move towards the idea of national legislation. We are in that, that principle that it is a maxim, that moral maxim principle that it's the duty of the magistrate that once they come in contact with the gospel, that they would begin ruling 
on behalf of the moral law as revealed in Scripture. That is, they would begin ruling in effect from what the Word of God reveals about man and about the nature of man and about morality. That that would guide them and govern them in their decision making. Now, there's certainly a ton of pushback on this. And, and, and all you have to do is begin to talk about these things and you're going to get this pushback. But what I want to do over the, again, next many weeks is to help you combat that, to give you the tools that you need in order to just ask sensible questions, sensible questions, and, and to see if you can, well, get reasonable answers to those questions. I'm certainly not advocating you go out and beat everybody up with it. I mean, this, this is a generational type of turning the ship. This, this isn't going to change overnight. We didn't get here overnight, and we're certainly not going to change it overnight. This have been decades, if not centuries, in the failing of the church to be the church and to preach what we might call the full gospel. Um, not in the Pentecostal sense, but in the biblical sense, the whole counsel of God's word. Now, what do I, let me make an application there. I hope that I have at least piqued your interest in now looking at the Bible a little differently, noticing things. And I want to give you a few more things to notice. In the very beginning, and I brought this up before, but I'm going to, I'm going to reintroduce uh, it. In the very beginning, when God made Adam, he just didn't make Adam as a private person. He entered into a covenant with Adam, and Adam was the head of the human race. He was the head. We know what heads are. He's with the authority. He was the federal head, the covenantal head. Now that matters and it does mean something when in, in the condition of innocence and of his righteousness and holiness in which he was created, he would have certainly ruled righteously. He would have certainly been a righteous head of the human race going forward into human history, even though he failed more than likely soon after becoming the covenantal head of the human race. But now, make that application. We, we can't just put a period on that and act as if there is no connection between that and anything else in the Bible because Jesus is called the last Adam. And just as Adam was the head of the human race in creation, Jesus is the human, head of the human race by creation and redemption. Matthew 28, what does Jesus tell the disciples? What do we learn there? He learns that we learn that Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me, right? All of it. It had a both political, a, or civil, right? And religious application. How so? Well, if you go to Matthew 28, what does he say? Therefore, go, go, and baptize. That's what he says, right? That's the command. Go and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But who are they going to go to? 
It's the, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the you know, placard of this church. Who are they going to make disciples of? The nations. Meaning that the scope of the commission that Christ has given to his apostles fit the commission given to him as mediator. Does that make sense? As broad and as comprehensive as his authority was when God granted it to him, that is how he tells his disciples to go, not just to go preach these spiritual truths, right, these moral principles, but to go take them where? To the nations. So that what? Psalm 2, so that the kings of the earth may be brought under subjection to Jesus Christ. Why? Because all authority has been given to him in heaven and on earth. So I make those connections. I'm going to make another one for you. So I want to show you. We begin with history and we make a, we, we make a connection from Adam to Christ, which is biblical, it's logical, and it's, it's theological. Very reasonable. I just gave you an argument. I just presented you an answer to so many different arguments out there about, well, you know, it's about spiritual things. Well, I just gave you the commission of the gospel. And that gospel is to go to the nations. Why? Because the nations are to be subdued to Christ, who is, like Adam, the head of the human race now. In both what we might call history and in redemption. Okay? Now, let's make another application. If you go to... And I didn't, I didn't make this up. I've learned these things along the way, beloved. I mean, these are things that I've learned. These are things that I was challenged with looking into this topic. If you go to the opening gospel, uh, Matthew's gospel, and we could go to Luke 2, but we're going to start with Matthew. Um, notice how the very, very first verse of the New Testament begins. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah the son of David. The son of Abraham. Now, it begins right there in verse 2 with Abraham. Why is he doing? Because Matthew is a Jewish gospel. So Matthew's writing this gospel to the Hebrews. He's writing it to Israelites. And what is he trying to show them? That Jesus Christ is the prophesied Messiah, the king. But notice the, op- the opening verse of the New Testament begins with Jesus' kingship. Now, brothers and sisters, churches don't have kings. Find me a verse in the New Testament where there are kings being ordained to rule over the church. There are not any. There are pastors, there are shepherds, under shepherds, if you will, of Jesus, who is the shepherd king. So again, we have a civil title. Notice, what was David? David was a king. David was promised back in 1 Samuel 7 that his throne would have no end. That is, his, the, the, the lineage of David sitting upon his throne would have no end to it. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophetic promise. God promises David that his seed will sit upon the kingly throne forever. Now, this is Israel's throne, but guess what? In Christ, it's expanded to what? The whole earth. It's cosmic in nature. It includes everything. Where David was, as a type of Christ, king over a certain spot of land, obviously, Jesus, because he's more glorious, he is truly the son of God after God's own heart. His authority has been granted over all the land, the whole earth. Notice the importance of chapter 2 of the Magi. The Magi coming and visiting this babe in a manger, if you will, though he wasn't in a manger when they finally got there. But that's the historical point. They come to see this baby. Look at verse 1. He says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And Herod the king heard this and he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. But again, again, how is the New Testament opening up to us? What's it emphasizing here? That Jesus is king. He is the chief magistrate. He is the prophesied superior of all magistrates. The king, that's why he has the title king of kings and lord of lords. Now, men had that title too. That were, those men that were so arrogant and full of themselves, they called themselves the lord of lords. But it truly does apply to Jesus. And that's why it's being emphasized. He is the, he's the chief magistrate, superior magistrate. Because remember, when you're dealing with civil authority and civil power, there are greater magistrates and lesser magistrates. That's how it's typically understood. Greater magistrates and lesser magistrates. And even the lesser magistrates are bound to follow and uh, the higher magistrates, the greater magistrates. And of course, who's the greatest magistrate? Jesus. So just that point there. Now we could do even one more. Let's just do one more as we continue to move into the New Testament. Um, look at the temptation of Jesus. Look at verse 8. What was the temptation right there in verse 8? Now, what I'm, what I'm doing here is showing you this isn't random. There's nothing random about these three temptations that the devil presents Jesus with. I mean, the, in fact, you can make the connection where just as Adam was, was tried and failed. Jesus is also tried and passes, right? But notice one of the temptations. 
And this is one of the same, we could make this application to Adam as well. Even the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And of course, Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But notice the offer is what? The kingdoms of this world. Now, now Adam had a similar, not exact, but I think there's a connection. You know, Adam had a choice to do what? To, to be submissive to God's authority and judge accordingly in the midst of his temptation, or he could determine to be his own God, his own king, so to speak. Jesus demonstrates that he is not going to choose for himself. Who's Jesus going to wait upon to give him, what does Psalm 2 say? Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. What's Jesus? Is Jesus going to usurp his probation, if you will? No. He's going to abide under the agreement between he and the Father. He's going to continue in submission to the agreement between he and the Father. What agreement? Well, the covenant of grace or the covenant of redemption. The agreement between the Godhead before the foundation of the world. And that if he succeeded and fulfilled those obligations that he would, as prophesied in Psalm 2, he would receive the nations as an inheritance or reward for his what? His obedience. Now, brothers and sisters, these are valid and interesting connections, aren't they? And probably connections we have not made in the, in the past because we have been trained to look at the scripture simply individually, um, spiritually, but not civilly, not whole world, not in this worldview, not in this realm of both civil and spiritual, secular and sacred. And I almost feel like I want to stop and ask for questions. But, I mean, we could go on through the Gospels and we could continue to make these connections. And this is what the Bible's revealing to us. They're showing us these things. We see centurions, right? Men of military authority bowing before Jesus, recognizing this authority. Now, it's, it's prophetic in one sense. It's not yet manifested fully, but we see it. We're already given glimpses of it. And so we need to be mindful of these connections, brothers and sisters, as we really ponder and consider this most, most important topic and why. If, if, if what I'm teaching you is valid, accurate. I want you to know we have the greatest opportunity to preach the gospel than we've had in many years, if, if this is right. 
we have a perfect opportunity. We have a social construct and condition that is allowing us to preach a full or perfect whole counsel of God's word gospel calling magistrates to account and showing people, other Christians, that the, this trouble, this uprising, this, this downfall is because King Jesus has been neglected and ignored and we must repent on many levels We must repent not only as individuals for being indifferent, maybe ignorant, but being indifferent and and not making these connections and calling these greater magistrates and even lesser magistrates to account. Heralding and teaching that if they don't do this, They will suffer the consequences and so will the nation with them. And this is exactly where we are. Now, people can ignore. I mean, you you can't argue with the facts of the case. You can can reinterpret them, right? That's what people do in court, right? There's one one lawyer presents uh, the facts as he interprets them to sway the jury. Another lawyer questions those facts, right? And challenges those facts and brings in some more facts in order to sway the jury to his side. But it's not a matter. The facts still remain the facts. They're always the facts. And the question is, what have we done with what we know? What have we done with scripture? What have we done with these truths? How has ignoring them, and when I say us, I mean the the church at large, And there has been um, certain heresies that have certainly accompanied, that is this lethargy and this neglect and this ignorant doesn't stand alone. They they are the result, I believe, of of several, uh, one primary heresy, which is dispensationalism, but even in the reform camp, there's the two kingdom view. Now, I'm not going to critique that tonight, but let me just speak to it. Those who advocate, Michael Horton and others, this two-kingdom view, basically, to paraphrase it, is this, that we live in two kingdoms. We live in this temporal kingdom, this physical kingdom, and then when there's this greater spiritual kingdom, greater Spiritual kingdom, that's the one that matters. In in this physical kingdom, we don't have the same obligations as we do in the spiritual kingdom. They're different. There's a dichotomy. And that's why they get into um, foolish applications of, oh yeah, we can support LGBT people, we can do, there's any number of things that we ought to oppose as Christians, but in their interpretation of this temporal, physical, unimportant kingdom, we can go with the flow, if you will, because we're just members of society. Now, that's an oversimplification, but I do think it drives the point home. And let me just close that 
portion down by saying this. Yes, you have the dispensational theology, which is more in your Baptistic Pentecostal circles. Uh, Methodists will hold to much of this. And, but then you have, the, you have problems in the reform camp as well with the two kingdom view. And then, of course, they'll use various uh, giants of the reform faith to prove their view. But I've not read, I've, I've, I've listened to so many outlandish sermons on politics and culture. I, I, I literally would have to stop and yell and, and laugh out loud because I thought, how could anybody come to this, this conclusion? And it's because of this dichotomy of these kingdoms. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not saying that these kingdoms are all the same. I'm saying they're distinct. And th but yet they're still very important and valid under the headship of King Jesus. Okay? So that it matters. Okay. One of the things that I pondered about this psalm and, and is... If you read the psalm, it doesn't read naturally. There is an unnatural sense in reading the psalm, and, and, and particularly in the voices, that is, in who's speaking. But there's also one thing that I want to point out to you. There's this present, past, and future tense of the psalm. There are things that are going on as the psalmist writes. The nations are in an uproar. That's current. Verse four through six is sort of present tense. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He's laughing now. He's laughing at their rebellion. Why? Because it's foolish. It will come to nothing. And he emphasizes that laughter, or if you will, it's not a laughter like funny, ha-ha. It's a laughter of scorn. You should have known better. You should have known these things. It's the same thing used in Proverbs where the father warns the son not to get involved with, with, with rebel rousers. Don't get involved with these, you know, thugs. And when you do and God punishes them and you experience that, don't be shocked and amazed. And God, again, laughs at this fool as a scorning laugh, if you will. You knew better kind of thing. But then he emphasizes in verse 6 by saying, I have, notice this past tense, but I have installed my king upon my holy mountain. What's the emphasis, I think, here is and why is it important? Even though there's current rebellion and there's a current scorning of God toward this rebellion in how the nations want to cast off um, the Lord's bonds, if you will, the, the Lord's authority, the Lord's law, if you will, it's emphasized by the fact of something that's already happened. God has already installed his king. Now, Jesus has not yet come. When this psalm was written, Jesus is only prophesied to come, but notice the emphatic nature of it. This is how God speaks. I'm laughing you to scorn. I've already made this decision. I've already installed my son on my holy mountain. It's a done deal. 
Your rebellion is for nothing. It's not going to change anything historically. And notice in verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. That's future. I will do these things. I'm going to do these things when my son comes and takes his rightful place, this is going to be the result of it. The nations are going to be his. And as notice, notice this. Surely give the nations, right? That's the Gentiles, the goyim, the nations. It's not just, it's not just individuals. Again, this is a precursor to Psalm uh, Matthew 28, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. I mean, you can't be more encompassing than that. I'm not only going to give you people, I'm giving you the heads of states. I'm giving you the nations. And what do we see? We could go through the book of of, um, Acts. What's demonstrated in the book of Acts? That Jesus exercises authority over civil magistrates. So, and then you can see, you shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall uh, shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, because these things are true, what should be the immediate response to it? Something needs to happen currently. Something needs to happen now. What is it? Take warning, O judges of the worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Notice what's he telling these magistrates and judges to do? Worship him. Is there a dichotomy in these verses between the civil magistrate and the religious practice of worship? Not at all. In fact, they're commanded to do it. They are commanded to do it, and if they don't do it, there is a there is the the an extreme by what you will break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them with, like earthenware. That's the reality. If you don't do these things, judgment will fall upon you. It's going to be a great judgment. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he may not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge. He's talking to the civil magistrates. He's talking to judges. He's talking to princes. And what he is telling them because they have a higher, they have a a greater responsibility because they have a greater role in the earth. They have, they have families under their care. They can crush people or build them up because they, what, how they rule matters. There's a sterner, fiercer judgment that falls upon the magistrates over the commoner. That's why we are where we are. This is why we are where we are. 
Okay. It, it will, you will receive pushback when you start talking about this. When you, when, when you begin talking about uh, politics and religion being sisters, you're going you're gonna to be scorned mainly because people are ignorant about it. And they really don't read their Bibles in light of what some of the things we looked at. They pass over those things. They just, they don't see them. But we have to go on and, and begin to not just teach this, but we have to add. This gives us, I think, the platform to talk about that national legislation should be, or should be birth, if you will, out of those religious values and truths. What do I mean? Well, the things that the church teaches, morality, what's true, what's not. I mean, all of, listen. If you think well, there's no reason for us to think that these things don't matter because now we are having debates in Congress. We have congressmen talking to judges and asking questions like, well, what is a woman? What is a man? And getting some of the craziest, dumbest answers that you could imagine because they are they are willingly neglecting to answer the question. And it's forced them to foolishness. It's forced upon them to look foolish. And so when we talk about the church's role in reality, I think we can see it, right? When we talk about the church's role in preaching morality, well, in, in what sense? Well, how about justice? What is justice? You can see how the church might inform the state on justice. You can see how the church might inform the state on truth, on peace. All of these things matter. These have, these have civil roles to them. And you can see that the tandem between the church and the state would be valuable to the citizens. And that's not the state lording over the church and it's not the church lording over the state. They both have their place and yet it is the church's job to teach the word of God. This the church's job to teach the world the ways of God. How to please God. What does God require? All of these things. And the state has to see their role in receiving that teaching and recognizing that if they are going to have God's favor and God's blessing, then they too must make application to the teaching of God, his word, his morality. Now, there is, I'm not gonna, if I read this word for word, I'm certainly not gonna get to it this evening, but one of the arguments that Thomas Burks makes in his book is, is the argument that uh, because he addresses the pushback that comes even in his day in the 1800s 
of national religion because even in his day, this, this idea of the separation of, of spiritual and secular was, was, was ingrained in the culture all the way back then. So it's nothing new. We're just seeing the fruit of an atheistic state. We're seeing the, we're seeing the fruit, the culmination of decades and decades of people standing in the places of judges and princes and going, oh, my faith has nothing to do with how I govern. I just remember being a small boy going, I don't know how that works. I wasn't even a Christian. How does that work? I mean, how can you claim to be a Christian and not be a Christian politician? Right? How does that work? I don't know. I mean, I was just a young boy asking questions. And, I, and again, we weren't raised in a Christian household. But I'm like, if you're a Christian, you're a Christian. Now, what Burks is going to do is he's going to highlight some roles that the civil magistrate has in the peace and the purity, the upkeeping and the prosperity of a nation. And he says, these things have to be in place. And, and, and they come directly from Scripture. And he says, it would be foolish to neglect them. Now, and the first one is jurisprudence. What laws will we have? What, what laws will govern us as a people? Now, do not hear me to say that that means going into the Old Testament case laws and, and bringing them into a modern day and using them. I, I, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's the right application. But we must do what they did, and that is we must take God's moral law and we must make application in our society, in our time. So the first one for a well, I guess, a well-behaved, peaceful people, you have to have a sense of national jurisprudence. You have to have a consistent judicial system, justice system. And there is no better There is no better source for jurisprudence and what's good in the sight of God and for the benefit of men than Scripture. There is no better source. You could find one. Is it going to be um, the? Is it going to be the the writings of Buddha? Is it going to be the writings of Confucius? Is it going to be the Dalai Lama's? You know, revelation, is it going to be uh, the source of Islam? Are we going to go by the what might be called the Sharia laws? I mean, we're, what's going to be our source of law? And we have every good right to stand up and go, we have the source for that. This nation was built on that. England in its old days was built on these Christian laws. And what happened, brothers, under these laws? What happened, sisters, under these law systems? The country thrived. The country thrived under these law systems. Now, does that mean they were perfect? Absolutely not. I mean, we have uh, situations where in England, 
And it, it caused an uproar in the church, but, and rightly so. But we have situations in England where you know, they had such a, um, there were so many adults that had died off, whether it be through disease or plague or whatnot. I mean, it left a lot of orphans. There were a lot of orphans in England. And there is the this, this story of one particular little boy that received 10 years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. Now, that was wrong. That was wrong. The, the, the crime, or the punishment certainly did not fit the crime. That's, that's not justice. And the church went, rightly so, spoke out against it and talked about it being an injustice to that little boy to have to serve such a harsh sentence when all he was trying to do was feed himself because he was starving. And the Bible even talks about mitigating punishment based upon those realities. If a man steals because he's hungry, you don't punish him in the same way a man steals just for the sake of stealing. You don't treat them the same. That's not just to do that. Now, we have, look, look, you see the wisdom of Scripture? Well, we could go to Sharia law and we could just cut your hands off, whether you like it or not. We'll just, uh, we'll just hobble you. Not only will we punish you in such a graphic way, in such a, an unjust way, we'll hobble you from even making a living for the rest of your life because it's going to be hard to make a living without a hand. How is that just? I mean, we can compare our faith to the other face of the world, can we not? You see, that's what I'm talking about. We have a platform for the gospel. I've, I've talked to Vicki about this, and, you know, I know some of you are, are aware and have read or probably have seen the movies when by Charles Dickens, you know, little Oliver. You've got this orphanage, terrible conditions, right? Now, that was the reality. Why did Charles write that story? Because it was real. He was good friends with George Mueller, and he supported George Mueller's orphanage in England. And Charles Dickens was a Christian, and what he wanted to do was he wanted the nation to know what was going on. He wanted to inform the, the you know, Englanders. He wanted to inform the nation of how these children are suffering. And the way he used his gifts and talents to do it was to write a story that's known as a classic And it, it, it did, it helped. People reading that story were heartbroken over little Oliver. They, 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 why? Because we sympathize with one another in conditions like that. And when we read that story, our heart goes out to Oliver and we're like, that poor child who had no recourse, no help, 
and was completely subjected to the providence of God in that situation, in that story. We could sympathize, we could have compassion on him. Well, then that moved people to make legislations, to make laws regarding how children might be punished if they are guilty of, well, stealing bread to fill their stomachs. Justice, brothers and sisters, as we looked at in weeks ago in Romans 13, is a very primary work of the state. That's one of their chief functions, is to ensure justice. And that's why we ought to employ just laws. Not just just laws, but we also must employ, and he's going to get into this, and I'm going to mention it, and we're going to close. I know we're all, it's warming up. Everyone's tired, and that means the attention spans are going down. It's not a matter of just the, we've had just laws. But just laws are no good if men aren't just who judge. You can have all the just laws you want. And if you have two-faced, finger-crossing judges who are more concerned about their political career, because that's what judges are. Judges are politicians. They're more concerned about their advancement and political career than rendering justice. That is a defacing of the glory of God. Deuteronomy talks about judging on behalf of the small and great without partiality. So brothers and sisters, there is no better way to not only employ just laws than with Christianity, the truths that Christianity holds to, but there's no better way to ensure proper justices than Christian justices who have who mean what they should mean when they take oaths and vows and oaths and vows are an outflowing of jurisprudence when you take an oath before God it used to mean something but because we've become atheists in practicality it doesn't mean anything anymore. We're not worried about the, the, the wrath of God. And that's what the oath does. So help me God, I will tell the truth. Meaning, I will call upon myself. I call upon myself these curses by the chief magistrate of all magistrates, the superior of all magistrates. I call upon myself these judgments if I don't tell the truth. And men in their consciences would tell the truth even at their own hurt. Not anymore. Not anymore. Very, it's very rarely. In fact, we are more employed by justices who could care less about religion. 
In fact, I've been told, I don't know this to be a fact, so take it with a grain of salt, that they don't even require you to put your hand on the Bible any longer, or you can opt out of it. Do you know why you used to could not even be called a witness in American jurisprudence if you weren't a Christian? You know why? Because there was no reasonable confidence that you tell the truth. Now, brothers and sisters, we're far from that Christianity, aren't we? Meaning you would have to have a testimony before you were allowed to be a witness in a case. Why? Because you had to take an oath. Well, if you weren't a Christian, that oath didn't matter. They just expected that you could possibly lie in this matter and justice is so important we can't afford it. Okay. Okay. 